0: This is Doreo Lalea, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 132.
1: the right place.
0: Mr. Hollywood himself presents the Before the Millions podcast. Podcast. And now your host, DeRay Olaleye. What is going on, BTM tribe? Welcome to another episode of the Before the Millions podcast. This is episode 132. Guys, I'm excited for today's show as usual. On today's show, we have a fascinating strategy to discuss. We're talking about a strategy that allows you to buy real estate. To participate in the benefits and the upside of real estate, but to no longer have to worry about rodents and tenants and repairs and anything else that a landlord typically would do. So on today's episode, we're talking about lifestyle design through distressed mortgage notes. Some of you may not know what that means yet, but I guarantee you by the end of this episode, you will have a good grasp on how to get started investing in real estate through the note, the underlying note on a mortgage loan. So, just to clarify, if a homeowner buys a house and they use bank financing, let's say the house is worth three hundred thousand dollars. Let's just say they're financed at two hundred and sixty. The bank has lent them two hundred and sixty. That two hundred and sixty thousand dollars takes place in the in the form of a mortgage note. So, what the bank typically does is they go and sell that $260,000 note to another bank or to an investment fund or to an investor. Now think about the bank's point of view or whoever they've sold the note to. The bank doesn't worry about landlording. The bank doesn't worry about repairs. The bank doesn't worry about any of the day-to-day activities that go on on the property. All they worry about is getting their money. So in essence, investing in mortgage notes would position you as the bank without having to worry about actually managing the properties or the notes of the properties that you own. And that's what today's show is about. And I brought on the perfect guest to give us a deep dive into the strategy and teach us exactly how to get started. Our expert guest is Mr. Jim Mafusio. Now we're drawing on over 30 years of his experience to help us learn this strategy and decide if and how We want to pursue it. So Jim has purchased over 1,000 loans in more than 35 states. And we're going to talk about what a typical deal looks like. We're going to talk about performing notes versus non-performing notes. We're going to talk about exactly where to find these notes and how to get started and what to look for in these notes. We're going to actually break down the math behind these notes. And this is something we've been doing a lot lately. I remember on the last episode, episode 131, our guest was pursuing the burst strategy. A completely different strategy in real estate. And we broke down the numbers step by step to make sure that you guys have a full grasp on these strategies. So today we do the same exact thing. We're going to start with a $100,000 property and we're going to show you what a typical deal would look like. Okay, so if we haven't already, let's connect on social media. There's a community of people, actually, a tribe of people, the Before the Millions tribe over at beforethemillions.com forward slash group that you can plug into. And they'll help you, including me, will help you get on your way. But also on Instagram, I love to kind of post my daily journeys, my wins, my clients' wins. So recently, I just posted a few wins on my Instagram story. Uh, One that comes to mind is of a Before the Minions mastermind member. He just passed his exam to become a licensed broker in the state of Louisiana. So big shout out to Antonio and also a win of one of my workshop clients who just purchased his first property. He's house hacking and he's making $750 a month from his second unit. So a special shout out to Jude as well. So again, I post a lot of these wins and victories over at Instagram. You can follow me over at BeforeTheMillions.com forward slash Instagram and let's connect. And a lot of the tribe members can and will attest to this, that I love going deep. So a lot of my conversations on social media, it's either, hey, it's a small chit chat, it's a quick question, or it's a quick, hey, what's up? Or it's a deep conversation, a super deep conversation. There's almost no in-between for me, right? I love going deep. So let's connect on Instagram. My social media handle is at my first name and last name. So that's dere olalia And I would definitely love to hear from you. Okay, cool. So since I've started the shout out train this episode, let me shout out our most recent iTunes five star review. And this review is from user handle Josh Christ. Now, if this is uh, one of the Josh's that I work with, I work with two Josh's in my uh, workshop and I work with one Josh in my Before the Millions Mastermind. If this is one of you guys, definitely let me know during our next meeting uh, this is an awesome review. But anyways, Josh Christ says, loved your recent episode with Sam Quack. By the way, guys, just a quick interjection. Sam Quack was on episode 124. So the review goes on to say, what really inspired me was the idea of who you are needing to match your earning aspiration. Valuing your patience, focus, perseverance, and diligence in alignment with how much you want to earn is a game changer. Lots of credible takeaways in this episode. Thanks so much for putting it out. Josh, thank you for the awesome review, and I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm ready to kind of just jump into the episode with Jim. It's a a lengthier episode because we get into all the details. And also, we talk about how Jim has survived two recessions, how he's lost it all, not once, but twice. Not very many people can say that, and I commend Jim for continuing down a path an entrepreneurial path that is not promised, but that is well worth it. So let's get to the tip of the week first.
1: raise tip of the week.
0: Okay. Every time that we put something off that we initially say that we want to do or that we're going to do, every single second that goes off on that clock equates to a lesser and lesser chance of you actually doing what it is you said you're going to do. So basically... The minute you say something or you commit to something, what I'm saying is take some type of action towards that project. Right, because let's just say that you would listen to this podcast or you're listening to any podcast at work. And you're like, oh, that's cool. That's stuff. I'm going to check that out when I get home. Every second that passes until you get home, even though you have every intention and you get excited and you're really, really serious about getting started doing something. Every second that passes. Just lessens the chances that you're actually going to take action on that thing. So if we were to so if we were to throw numbers in the equation just to make a little bit more sense of it, let's just say that every hour that passes, your chances of actually taking action decrease by ten percent. By the time you get home, or by the time you get to a, a quiet environment, or by the time, or by the time you get to your computer because you don't like to look at things on your phone, whatever it is that's going on in your head as to why it needs to wait, it'll your chances of actually doing that would have decreased to 10% or negative 20%, right? So what I try to do is I try to immediately, the minute I hear something, I try to either put it in my notes, set it as a reminder, go ahead and, and download the file, which is what I'm getting ready to tell you guys to do. Go ahead and download the file now. And that way I have it in Safari. I have it on one of my tabs and there's no way it could escape me. I have to eventually revisit that when I get home. So if some of you guys may know and already have uh the before the millions real estate guide is out. The newbie's guide to getting started down your investing journey. You guys know that I pursue the motivated seller strategy. A guest on today's show, he pursues mortgage notes. guest on the last show, he uses hard money to pursue the Burr strategy and so on and so forth. Every guest has their own strategy. Every guest that's come on the show is either a super successful entrepreneur or is making millions. So all these strategies work. But you have to figure out what works for you, what's best for you. My strategy may not be the best strategy for you, and I'll be the first person to tell you that. So what I've recently came out with is a guide that's going to help you filter through a lot of these strategies and figure out where you should start based on your wants, needs, and desires, based on your resources, based on the time that you have, based on the capital that you have, based on your commitment level, right? So if you're looking for clarity around how you should get started in real estate, Listening to these podcasts that are super informative, that you hear a lot of people changing their entire life with one deal. You hear a lot of people that are making passive income. You hear a lot of these people that are living their ultimate lifestyle of design. They're traveling the world. You hear a lot of people creating generational wealth for their kids. This assessment and this guide is going to help you figure out exactly what you want real estate to do for you and by when. And then at the end of the guide, there's a contract between you and yourself that you're going to fill out, and you're going to sign to make sure that whatever it is that you've chosen, that you've selected, that you filter through, and now you know this is your strategy, you're actually going to stick to it, and you're going to give yourself a timeline to get your first deal done by. This is over at beforethemillions.com forward slash guide. Again, guys, my job here in this tip of the week is to encourage you to take action, not only take action, but take immediate action, right? The type of immediate action that's going to have a lasting effect for when you do get home for next week, for the month after, for closing your first deal. That guide is over at com forward slash guide. Now let's get to the show. And now your feature
1: presentation.
0: First and foremost, Jim, how's it going today?
1: It's going great. I've been really looking forward to having this time with you, Dere. Jim, how do you say your last name? Uh, with difficulty. Uh, it's Mafuccio <laughs> it's Mafuchio,
0: uh, Jim.
1: And Boy, I hear all kinds of versions of that and different spellings, but that's what it is, Mafuccio.
0: What's the origin?
1: That's Italian.
0: Do you frequent Italy, or were you were you born in Italy? I have
1: actually, I, I frequent Italian restaurants, but I have not actually gone to Italy yet myself. That's definitely something I want to do here. So. Really, Italy's amazing, Jim. Put it on the list. And, and yeah, Italy yeah, is. That's what I hear. And I'm, I definitely will make my way over there. Your parents? My father was born here in the States, and yep. uh, his dad came over, actually, Ellis Island. And then my mom's actually German and Swedish. So I'm kind of a, I, you know, really, I'm an American. You know, I. I you know, there we go. There we go. There I, I have go. an Italian last name, but. Uh, and I'll claim some things about Italy, like the food. But <laughs> yeah. So let, let's talk about that upbringing. Let's take a journey back into the time machine. Let's figure out. Like
0: where did this entrepreneurial book come from? like was it from an early age? Was it a little bit older? Was it because of life life circumstance like kind of walk me through the journey that that brought you to where you are today
1: yeah, definitely will so i uh first of all my my dad was the- first, he was one of a a large family and he was a, he was the only one of his siblings to get a college degree and he actually did that through the military through r o t c and he got it, he ended up with an Ivy League. He went to Brown University, he got an engineering degree, paid for by the governments because he served his time in the military. And so he became an engineer. And then uh, he had, you know, he he and my mom had the, us three boys. I'm the youngest of three sons. And all of us went on to get engineering degrees. So kind of the apple fell from the tree. And we said, hey, this seemed to work out well for him. So uh, So I got a civil engineering degree from Louisiana State in 1979, And went to work as an engineer, complete, I mean, it was literally, I went to work for the largest corporation in the world at that point in time. So uh, I was about five years into that journey as an engineer and making a good salary and, you know, have everything laid out for you, everything that a corporation offers. And around that time, I just started really getting the bug. And it was really, uh, for me personally, it was kind of a spiritual journey But something awakened inside of me, which was um, that I want to really, my my goal back then was, I want to be able to buy back my time. I feel like I can be more productive in 40 or 50 hours a week than what the compensation was that I was earning. And it wasn't like it was bad compensation, but it's just pretty much at the end of a week, I didn't have any time left, you know, to pursue things, uh, you know, things that I might be interested in beyond the oil and gas industry. So, uh, so, I got my real estate license while I was still working as an engineer in one thousand nine hundred and eighty uh, five and I got uh two or three deals in under contract for friends of mine and I started doing the math and saying you know man i can i 'll make more money with, when these three deals close than i 'm making a in three months working for the corporation i quit <laughs> so i I turned in my resignation and about uh within two weeks, two of those deals fell apart. Wow. And it was uh it was welcome to walking on walking by faith at that point in time. So I stepped out of the corporate world in uh February of nineteen eighty six and have been self-employed ever since in the real estate world. And real estate's a big word. So uh to get started, I, I was doing transactional business, just basically operating as a real estate agent for friends. And then a partner and I started a small uh residential development company. We started buying small uh, plots of land in Southern California and subdividing them and then building homes on them. So I was a developer. I was a a small scale developer in Southern California and did that for, um, well, in about 1991, we had a gold nugget award-winning program or or, uh, development and um, actually ended up losing everything. And life was really easy up to that point for me because the market was going in a good direction in California and uh, lost everything to the savings and loan crisis and really had to start over from scratch. And uh, I did so and I went back to doing the same thing, residential development, focused on affordable housing and, uh, you know, put together the investors, found the land, brought in the architects, brought in all the pieces needed to do a development project and then, uh Lost it all again wow. <laughs> in the subprime crisis, so the mortgage w- what we know of as the mortgage crisis two thousand eight through two thousand and eleven so I found myself um, in that time frame with uh, a wife and five teenage kids at the time, completely broke uh, development skills were wasted at that point in time uh, because nobody you, you know you couldn't make sense of developing property in you know, after that, after that crisis during that crash. So I had to really start looking at how can I take my real estate background and my project management skills and focus that into a direction to, uh, to get back, you know, climbing up the hill for the third time. And that's really where I discovered the, uh, the mortgage space during that time frame.
0: As you can imagine, there's a lot to unravel there, right? Um, yeah, there is. You lost it all twice, and I, I remember in Rich Dad Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki always talked about how he he just wanted to to lose it all before thirty because it was it was it was it was proof to him if he were able to get it back that he had a he had a a solid system in place. Yeah, and I want to speak to maybe resilience. I want to speak to maybe luck. I want to speak to Maybe a decision just just hadn't made a decision at that time because you 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 had three three properties, there are three clients that you had uh, their properties listed either selling or buying for, right. and for one reason or another, two of those fell through. Right. What stopped you from going back to work? What stopped you from getting that stability? What 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 told you that? Hey, Jim, keep going, keep doing this. Like, what told you that? I mean, why not have that safety net?
1: Well, I'd love to give you the, the more exciting uh, version where I'm 100% the hero, uh, but I'll tell you that it's a twofold story. Number one, I had already turned in my resignation, so the the bridge was burned. I wasn't going back. <laughs> so that, that's pragmatically, that's probably the real reason, but, but well, that's the on paper reason. The real reason is, and I think this is what you're, you're touching on, uh, you know, I just... I just knew what I was capable of doing, you know when those two deals fell apart, it wasn't because I didn't do my job it's just it's real estate you know there's all kinds of factors and variables involved, and you know you learn in real estate real quickly it's not closed until it's closed and you get paid when it gets closed but this but the but the uh the things that I needed to do to get even get those things those properties under contract, you know I knew how to do that it was a skill set that I said, hey, I can do this I can I'll just keep doing it. And eventually, you know, there's going to be enough deals in the pipeline where I can I can make a living even as an agent. And fact of the matter is one of those deals came back together. And then the uh, the other one, I still had the client and I went out and found them. They were buyers. I was ser- serving as the buyer's agent. I was able to go find them in another house. So it was a little bit of a scare, you know, at first, but then it was, hey, I took my deep breath before I jumped and I'm focused on this thing. I'm going to make it work. So uh, I had my time back, right? Because I didn't have to show up, you know, forty hours forty hours a week at the uh, working for the man. So I had nothing to do with my time but to start, you know, ringing phones and visiting people, and you know, just applying the uh, applying the process that it takes to be a successful real estate. Again, at the time, a real estate agent, and that was pretty short lived because I started doing the projects about a year and a half after that. I got involved in the the real estate development end of things.
0: So. When you when you decided to leave your 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 W two job, you know I'm speaking to a lot of the listeners out there, Jim. When when you know there's there are certain people with the mindset, and there's two different ways of looking at things. So I'm interested to see what your take is. But there are people with the mindset to where I need to see a certain amount of income for me being an agent first before I totally leave. Like I need to see this month over month, I need to see that consistently that I'm at least making what I'm making at work, and then I'll leave. Whereas there are some people who are like, hey. Burn the boats. Come hell or hot water, I'm going to be able to figure this out. Right. How how do you navigate through making a decision like that?
1: Yeah, I I would say by the way that I, that I'm somebody who's probably uh, somewhere in the middle of that continuum. If those are the if those are the extremes, uh, one I've got to have the replacement income in place before I cut bait. Being being the most conservative and the then the most uh, rogue. Would be the other side of it, which is I don't care what it takes. I'm going to do this. Burn the bridges, like you said. Burn the boats. Um, you know, being an engineer and being you know kind of raised in you know concert, more of a conservative way of thinking, I couldn't just jump out without knowing. So I, I did get my license. I did get those deals under contract. But this is kind of where my optimism. I'm always looking at the half full. In fact, I when I see when some people see it as half empty, I see it as three quarters full. You know, I don't even see it half full. So I was like, okay, I can do this. I, once, I, once I understand the process, and I think that's going to hear me talk about process a lot because I think most anything in life, there is a, a design and a, that makes sense this is, there is a design and a process and if people will engage the process and um, usually you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, there's always somebody, a mentor, a book, a process that can be laid out and says, this is what you have to do to be a successful fill in the blank real estate entrepreneur, and the discipline of just doing that repetitively until you break through, is a big part of succeeding in life in in, in any aspect of life. So uh, that was that was kind of in me. It was very very undeveloped at that point in time, but I kind of had to learn it because i'd I'd already I'd already turned in my resignation. You don't go back to the corporation and say, "Just kidding, I want my job back." They they would look at that and say, "If you have the character that would." that would bail on us once, you'd probably bail on us again. It just wouldn't happen, and I, it would have never happened for me anyway, so. So, so that, that,
0: that's an interesting perspective. So, so Jim, let me ask you this. The fact that you lost it all the first time, and I wanna, I wanna take us to the, the very next day, and maybe even the next few years, and talk about what was your self-talk like? Yeah. What, were, what were the now fail-safes you're gonna put in place to make sure it never happened again? And yeah. then what your mindset had to be like for you to get yourself out of whatever rut you, you probably were in because you all lost it all to get you back to, okay, I'm going to get up on this horse. I'm going to figure this out. Like walking through that process, building up fail-safes and, and, and maybe even vowing to yourself, this will never happen to me again. I will never be in this position again. And then it happens again. Right. Walk me through that.
1: Yeah, that's real interesting cuz a lot of stories just, you know, you have the you have the, uh, the rags to riches. You don't <laughs> you don't do it twice. So, uh I'll tell you my my biggest uh, you know, it, it, you know, my my anchor in this whole thing is personally is my faith. So, I'm just going to put it in terms where I don't get preachy on people that maybe aren't coming from the same perspective because you'll hear it in the uh, in the personal development field, they'll talk a lot about knowing your why, your W H Y, W H Y, you know, like why I'm doing there's gotta be something in you that's powerful enough to keep the engine going and keep you moving down the track when the adversity comes. For me, that was my my faith and specifically, not in some general sense, but I knew that I knew that I knew what I was supposed to do. And it was not go back to a J O B. Now again, different strokes for different folks there. But uh, th- th- it just wasn't an option for me. I was willing to to take care of my family. Even the second time when things crashed for me, I can remember saying, having these, these talks with, uh, <laughs> I'll just say with myself, but with God, which were, I, w- I will go back to Starbucks. I'll start as a barista and I'll do it. I'll, I'll be faithful with it. I'll be diligent with it. And maybe as a store manager, I can actually take care of my family, whatever. So it wasn't really an issue of too proud to go back to the workforce. It's just again, when you know that you know that you know what you're mm. supposed to do, it just settles a lot of issues for you. So uh, you know, you you just keep you keep moving forward. I wish that I had seen some things in my first downfall that I would that I would have put in place, which probably would have prevented the second one, but a big a big part of the the story for me, and I think that's what led to me to get into the the business that I'm in now is realizing how uh how tied to success how how debt d e b t um, is is such the key component to the real estate industry that it can be misused, it can be timed wrong, and it killed me to be honest twice because I was a very small fish in a very big pond trying to trying to compete with corporations that had deep pockets so that when they started to see the markets turn, they could dump their prices $40,000, $50,000 and it's a speed bump for them. Well, when I'm paying, you know, high interest rates on mostly privately financed deals, you know, you you really quickly realize, you know, this thing's working against me now. So, uh, you know, being a developer in Southern California, whether you like it or not, you're really a speculator if you're small you're, you're, you're betting that the market's going to be in healthy shape by the time you have a product to sell. And when you're, when you're going through subdivision process and all these different regulatory approvals, the problem is you have no idea how long that timeline is. So if you hit the timing, right, you make millions of dollars on a successful project. If you hit the timing wrong, you make zero and you owe a bunch of people money. And I just hap- I hit the timing wrong twice. So, uh, you know, if if I had owned everything free and clear, it wouldn't have been. I mean, it would have been a, a significant reduction in net worth, but I still would have had a product. I still would have had real assets, and so uh, I have a completely different philosophy about real estate now. I, I finally am able to admit I used to be a speculator. I wasn't intending to be, but I just was. Now I'm looking at real estate that makes more sense. You know, the, the Mid America. You know house that's worth $100,000 but it'll rent for 1200 a month. I mean, where's that going to go? There is no bubble there. You know, it's not going to disappear. People need housing and uh, it's, it's more of a bread and butter conservative play. And so, the mortgages we buy and invest in are secured by that, t- generally by that type of real estate. It's not high dollar, high speculative real estate. Man. So much wisdom, Jim. So much wisdom. <laughs> well, see this up here. You can see my hair. Maybe your audience can't, but uh, it used to be really dark brown. <laughs> so.
0: I, I love it. I love it. I love it. It symbolizes wisdom, and uh, I, I got goosebumps as you were kind of going through your story. It, it, it's fascinating. It's like you knew what he made you for. That's exactly you know right. exactly why you're here, and, and nothing can deter you from that. And I want to. I want to have a, a newbie's introduction into mortgages and what it is, how to get started. Um, what's required? Um, how how much do you need? Where do you even look? How do you how do you know if it's a good deal? Like all that good stuff. I want I want to see if we can uh, kind of have the newbie's crash course on mortgage notes. And let's start with how you found mortgage notes and and why it was so appealing to you as opposed to being a landlord or some of these other real estate investment strategies.
1: In two thousand and nine and ten, uh, I ended up moving from the West Coast out to the mid Midwest. I was in Kansas City. And I started uh, seeing all these, I mean, every other house was boarded up no matter where you went. I mean, it was like, there was distress everywhere. And, uh, you know, the banks, you know, were, were trying to get rid of this, you know, trying to get rid of their properties, the the real estate that they'd foreclosed on. And then I realized, wow, they're probably trying to get rid of the loans too. They're going bad. So, there was opportunity everywhere. And I started flipping houses just to, just to you know, feed my family. I hired a guy to, to do the on-site work and supervision. And I started buying wheel and deal buying these houses, found a couple investors that were willing to back me to put, put together private loans, bought the houses, flipped them. And it was just, I was keeping my head above water, but I was looking for, I, I just, my sense was there's opportunity here everywhere. Where do I stick the fork into this thing, you know? And so again, it was, it was really through, it was, it was pretty much, div- I was divinely led, I'll just say to the mortgage The distressed mortgage space specifically, and uh, a friend of mine in 2010 uh, that I'd been talking to a lot about doing short sales with, and you know, working on this thing together. Like, how can we take advantage of the opportunity that's out there when you've just gotten your butt beat twice and you have no money, no capital? And so he said, "Hey, I've got a tickets to go to this uh, this conference on real estate notes in Denver." He goes, "I can't make it. Do you want to take my ticket and go?" I said, "Yeah, absolutely." Oh wow. Oh, wow. And to be honest with you, I would not have bought the ticket. I I would, that's where I was at. I, I didn't even have the money to buy to buy a ticket to go to this mortgage uh conference. So I flew out to Denver. I had some airline miles, Southwest airline miles. So I flew out there. I went to this conference and through the next 6 months I went through a kind of an in, interior journey, if you will, but I felt like the the clear instructions I got was focus here. This is where to focus. And so um, I started, I got online, I started researching, I signed up for webinars. And and I just want to say this to, to your audience that's out there. You, It's incredible the information that's available at your fingertips for free that's online. Is there a lot of junk? Absolutely. But you know what? Do the hard work of sorting through it And you still have to, you still have to use your brain, you know, but there's a lot of free material. There's, there's a, well, I mean, like your, your podcast right here, you know, I mean, I'm sure people it's launched people. It's helped people kind of find the next step. Um, I started researching, you know, buying distressed notes, non-performing notes. And, and I, I built this business really in the early stages by going to conferences. I can tell you that, uh, two or three of the key people that work for our company now because we're now a company of about 18 people in three offices, uh, $30 million under management and growing will probably double in the next year and a half because uh, t- I turned it into this like, you know, kind of on the kitchen table endeavor of mine into this uh, scaled up business model. It's a long story but um, my point is this, if a person wants to learn about mortgage notes, they, you know, literally you can go online, you, you can go to some of the larger podcasts and you, you can search by the topic and it's, it's all there and then you go to the conferences. There's one coming up here in, uh, in November actually down in Dallas. There's a guy that you'll, if you start googling around, you'll find this guy who runs this big Node Expo. It's called Node Expo and you go there and you listen to the speakers and then you shake hands and meet people and start networking and next thing you know, You got somebody that's got some notes they can sell you. And then you got some investors that want to put up some money and do it with you. So that's, that, that's the place to get started is called just get started. It just seriously jump into the middle of this thing, learn everything you can learn, learn as much as you can for free, and then uh, decide which, you know, specific direction you want to go within the field. And that's what I did.
0: And in the general term note buying, right? Buying mortgage notes is it always safe to assume, is, it, is, the, is the primary presumption that you're, you're buying distressed non-performing notes, or do people actually buy performing mortgage notes? Is that a common thing?
1: Absolutely, both. Uh, in fact, probably there's more people buying, uh, there's probably more dollars in play buying performing mortgages than non-performing simply because there's more performing mortgages out there than there are non-performing. Mortgages sell every day. You got to understand, you know, the when you go down to your local, you know, Wells Fargo or City or Chase uh, office and, and, you know, the credit officer there sits across the table and takes your loan application or the mortgage broker that comes to your house or whatever, that, that's not money they've got sitting in the trunk of their car, you know. So, from day one, even the stuff, even the the, you know, the top tier paper, that stuff's getting sold and then resold. And so uh, there's always been, you know, a mortgage in a resale industry, a secondary market for mortgages. This uh, mortgage crisis that happened really created an opportunity for entrepreneurs and small scale people to jump into this space that probably never existed before. And a big part of that is the, the, you know, the internet. I mean, back in the, SNL crisis, savings and loan crisis in the early 90s, the internet wasn't that well established. It wasn't, everybody wasn't even online at that point in time. So this uh, mortgage crisis that happened, I mean, the information's out there so people can jump in. And that's what I love about entrepreneurism. I mean, there's all kinds of business models that have sprung up within this industry that have allowed people like myself, a small, really a small player when I jumped in, I had nothing. I had zero, zero capital, I had 30 years of experience in this gray hair and some some uh and, and faith you know and stepped into it and uh it's it's very doable why buy non performing notes well okay why buy non performing notes because when you see the uh the upside potential uh you know you can you can take paper that's it, honestly it's it's you know you've heard the the adage you know one man's trash is another man's treasure well, these institutions that had all of this defaulted paper on their books, they absolutely have to get rid of it. They go out of business if they don't get rid of it. It's called bank failures and, uh, you know, being being uh, taken over by, uh, you know, by the regulators, which is actually what happened to a whole, whole bunch of institutions. They couldn't get rid of their paper quickly enough. So you have somebody on on one side of the transaction that absolutely must get rid of this paper and then you have somebody else on the other side that says, "Wait, I can buy. I can buy this for, you know, pennies on the dollar, and and then I can work with the borrower, and if if the, if I can get the borrower back into a payment plan and give them a much reduced, I can I can forgive some of the debt, I can lower the interest rate, whatever it takes to get them performing again. I've just created a, a performing asset, which I can either hold for the cash flow or I can sell." to the people who buy performing paper and I've just made a big spread on that. So if you think of like you go to rehab a house, you find a house that's in distress that you go in, you pay cash for, you know, maybe you buy it at 40 cents on the retail value and then you put the sweat equity into fixing the house up and then you sell the house on the retail market. Well, we're doing the same thing with this paper. We're doing the same thing with the debt instrument. We're we're buying fixer upper paper and we're rehabbing the paper. So, that's super general terms but and there was a ton of it out there, you know, when I jumped into this in 2011. Now, I have to say, uh, you know, the, the supply has diminished significantly, okay. There's still plenty of defaulted paper out there but it's not like this big window of opportunity that was open when I got in. So, my timing was really, really good. But there's always been a note industry. There's always been people buying non-performing mortgages. And there's always people buying performing mortgages. And an entrepreneur can insert themselves in the middle of that process. And even to serve as a broker, where you go out and you be a finder, you find this paper for, for larger buyers. Like we're at the place now where we're buying a lot of performing paper and we can't find it all ourselves. So we have people that broker it to us and we pay them, you know, handsomely to find us deals. So... So so
0: before I get to how you actually find those deals, let me just walk through the quick scenario that that I've kind of gotten from our conversation. So there's a there, there's a homeowner and they're behind on their rent payment. I mean, I'm sorry, they're behind on a mortgage payment for three months. They get some initial letters and calls from the bank. They don't respond or they don't pay or they get on a payment plan, whatever the case may be. They go into pre foreclosure, um, even in pre foreclosure, they're, they're still not able to come up with the funds they go into foreclosure, they get foreclosed on. Now the bank is sitting on this homeowner's note and all the other homeowners notes that, that, um, that are, that are now non-performing.
1: Once the note is, the loan is foreclosed on, there is no longer in general, there is no longer a loan. Now the, now that bank, that institution owns the pro, they own the real estate at that point in time. Good distinguishment. So now, now I'm thinking that there's a small window. Well, yeah, there's, there's a small window in a sense, but because these uh, because these institutions, now, again, I'm talking more about the climate three, four years ago, but because these institutions had all of these loans that were in default, a lot of them were hesitating to start the foreclosure process because, you know, once they start the foreclosure process, now they're spending legal money. Uh, not only that, um, in, in a lot of counties, they have to register the property, become a register. They have to register the property. Now, they're responsible for things that go wrong at the property. So, and there was just so much volume of bad loans coming into the system that it hemorrhaged the whole infrastructure in terms of, you know, processing the foreclosures. So uh, that's kind of settled back down. But, but the window to buy these notes is from the time when it goes non-performing to the point of foreclosure. So a lot of the loans we buy are actually already in foreclosure. But the institution that owns it or the other hedge fund that owns the paper, they don't want to go all the way through with the foreclosure process because that's not their business model, okay? So we step in and say, hey, we'll buy your position out. Now, we become the lender and we take over the legal file, let's say. But the first thing we're going to do is we're going to reach out to the homeowner because our 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 business model is not to buy a bunch of homes because, uh, because of people that are losing them in the foreclosure. Our business model really is to try to buy this paper cheap enough that we can then reach out to the borrower homeowner and mm. uh, and make it work for them. So our ideal, and this happens more than 80% of the time, is it's win, win, win. The institution that didn't know what to do with the paper wins because they got out of the deal and, you know, granted they had to take a hit. Uh, the homeowner wins, so they get to stay in their home at an affordable payment structure and then we win and our investors win because we bought the paper so cheap. We put the sweat into fixing the paper and now we have a valuable asset that we've just created. And then the nice thing is I've never touched a toilet. I've never dealt with a call at, late at night by a tenant that something broke. You know, the toilets, tenants and trash thing that everybody talks about. By the way, I'm a big believer in owning real estate too. So I'm not gonna be the either or guy. Uh, but for me jumping in, I could, I could control a lot more value by investing in notes because of the leverage than I ever could have by buying houses. So, I mean, for instance, right now, we have, I don't know, we're probably have a thousand mortgages that that, that our company owns and they're in 38 states. Well, some people do that with real estate. I could never do that. I'm, I'm 63 years old, okay? So, I'm not going to be running all over the country looking after houses but it's really easy to manage the mortgages Ah, uh, remotely because you have servicers that are involved in the equation, and you have a lot of infrastructure, a lot of soft infrastructure that helps run this business. So,
0: this is a this is a beautiful, beautiful business model. I love when I get guests on the show, and I, I and I we do a deep dive into a business model, and it makes sense, it works, and so many people should definitely explore uh, explore mortgage notes. So, let me ask you this: when when you're finding these actual notes, what's that process like?
1: Well, it's okay, I'll answer it two ways for us now because we're established we're, we're we're kind of an established uh company now. We're we have a footprint in the space. I'll tell you we're we're focused on in a niche. We're we're actually we actually buy mostly junior liens. So we buy we buy defaulted second mortgages on our on our non-performing mortgage side which a lot of people just say that's insanity, <laughs> which, which we love because the less players, the better. So we're very embedded in this industry and it's, we know the people that are buying and selling and uh, we, we, we've gotten in with some institutions. To start there is probably unrealistic for, uh, for somebody just jumping into the space. If I were just coming into the space today, I would I would definitely steer somebody away from our end of it simply because, not because I'm afraid of competition. The regulatory, uh, the level of regulation and licensing requirements and all of that have increased sub- substantially over the last handful of years. So I would say jump into the, uh, you know, the if you're going to do defaulted mortgages, you know, there's a lot more availability of defaulted firsts and again, you go to these conferences and you'll meet people, you meet the loan brokers that are out there actively talking all the time. They're bidding on, on large pools of loans from institutions. Uh, I mean, I know a guy that their, their company just won a $29 million pool of, uh, of uh, I think it was FHA loans that they just bid. It was government, one of the GSEs, but they just, wow. they just want, that's, you know, probably a couple hundred loans. And, and so, uh but, but what those those larger companies will do is they'll break these things down into smaller pools or even single loans. So somebody jumping in can you know go buy one loan. There's there's online note exchanges for heaven's sake that a person can you know can buy a single loan and start working it. Um, again, you, you have to do your homework because there's a lot of there's a lot of overpriced stuff out there right now. But you can get the education in this in this business fairly inexpensively. So if a person's really willing to do you know the, the ho- their homework they can uh, they can set up a process and then you know step into it fairly inexpensively
0: so the two key ones for a beginner that i got out of there was approach loan brokers and build relationships yes. and then online online note exchanges what's, yes. a, what's an example of an online note exchange
1: i think there's actually one called note exchange <laughs> yeah so, uh, there's another uh, there's another group uh, you know it's called paper stack uh, and I think that's P-A-P-E-R-S-T-A-C. And it's just a newer one that's getting started. Um, you know, I, if, if, if an individual wants to go to the, I tell you, if you just Google Note Expo, and by the way, I have nothing to do. I, I'm no, I have no affiliation. I know who the people are that run it. They've been in the industry a long, long time. The guy who started it's been around for 30 plus years in the note industry, uh, if you go to a conference like that or even I think they have some online trainings, um, you, start, you start learning what the whole business looks like. Then you start figuring out where you want to jump in. And then you go to these conferences. You go to meetup groups. And uh, I guarantee you, in any major metropolitan area, there's a, there's a real estate investment group. And by now, you go to a RIA group, you're going to find people that invest in notes there. So start building the network, just just start jumping in and, uh, you know, joining the different meetup groups, the, the the LinkedIn groups and going to conferences and shaking people's hands and meeting them. And I promise if you go to a, if you go to one of these three-day conferences and you don't leave there with, you know, 15 to 20 contacts that you then follow up with and don't end up, you know, being able to buy and buy some notes from or sell some notes to, you know, you're you're just... You, maybe you shouldn't be an entrepreneur. It's really available. It's really available for persons who want to step out. I love it. Let's, uh,
0: let's one last and final question as it pertains to notes. I just want to walk through a quick $100,000 example. Um, I think that we've made it pretty clear uh, where, the, uh, where the profit points are and where you should kind of pay attention to the numbers. But just in case, I know some of our listeners are a little bit more visual. So we'll walk through a quick $100,000 example. And, uh, Jim, just fill in the blanks for me. So let's just say there's a house and it's worth $100,000. And also there's a note attached to that property that's worth $100,000. That note has been paid down to about $70,000. The house is worth $100,000. The note is $70,000. And maybe the homeowner hasn't been paying their mortgage and, um, they're behind three months so they're behind, let's just say $3,000. So they're all in at 73 to the bank. That's how much they owe the bank. And they've just defaulted and, you as the uh, you as the the note buyer, you're like, hey, I'm going to pick up this note. I'm going to try to pick up this note for let's just say, thirty thousand dollars. Is that reasonable? Probably,
1: probably unrealistic for it for a for a first mortgage, that's only three months underwater. First of all, you need to understand for for a smaller player, it's it's not going to be as easy to find you know, a loan that's three months in default because you would be the first buyer of that, of that loan typically. So more realistically, honest, if I could, would be to say the loan hasn't had a, they haven't made a payment in say a year. Mm. Okay. By the time it's, by the time it's available to a player at, at an, an entry level player in the business, that loan would probably sell for, so let's just say the, using your example, it, the, the, Principal balance is seventy thousand. The total owed on it, let's say, is eighty thousand. That loan would probably sell. Uh, and this isn't exactly the kind of paper we go after, but I'm going to guess that would sell for something in the forty-five to fifty percent range, not of the loan balance, but of the of the BPO Entire, value yeah. of the property. Okay. When gotcha. you buy when you buy mortgages, you're really buying. You're looking at your investment to value ratio not necessarily the loan to value ratio, because even though that borrower owes 80, I don't want to pay 80 for that loan. Now, in some markets, there's some crazy people out there that are actually buying paper at close to par, which which is, that's not the world we're in. That's not the entrepreneur world, right? So, I'm going to say you can buy that, loan, that mortgage. Let's say you could buy that mortgage for 50% of what the property's worth, but let's say a BPO on the property shows maybe the people have left the property. So, it's... Vacated and it's not, or it's in disrepair at whatever level. So maybe the BPO comes in at ninety thousand dollars. So I'm going to make an offer to buy that paper for forty-five thousand. You follow me? Fifty percent of the as-is value of the property. Okay. So if I own the paper now for forty-five thousand, then I'm going to start. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to board that note with a servicer. I don't want to get too technical, but I'm going to use a licensed servicer that knows how to send all the statements out to the borrower. And, and maybe even they're going to have all of the initial direct contact with the borrower. Uh, that's how we do our business. Um, we actually have some in-house people that contact the borrower directly, but they're former bankers and they're very compliance minded. It's, it's, it's pretty dangerous water out there when you start contacting bar, homeowners directly. Uh, there's some things you can do really wrong and get in a lot of trouble. So again, get the education, but let's just, I'll go, I'll back up. Get, I'll go back up to thirty thousand feet here. I'm sorry. So you buy this good. thing for forty five thousand dollars. If you have a homeowner that that you know they got too far behind and they couldn't they couldn't bring the full ten thousand balance to to the uh, previous lender, and that's all the lender would allow them to do. I can go to that homeowner. I can say, "Look, uh, you know what have you got? First of all, what happened? What's your story? Why did you stop making your payments? And you know you'll hear all kinds of stories. And then more importantly, what do you wanna do? Do you wanna stay in this property? Is it realistic for you to stay in this property? Yeah, we'd really love to. We've raised our kids here, we just got a little bit behind and now we feel like we're too far behind and we're gonna lose the property. Okay, what do, you, what do you have in terms of liquid assets? Can you, and maybe they can bring $3,000 to the table. Okay, and then what about your income? Do you? Are, yeah, we got back on our feet, I had to go find a new job but I've been doing that now for six months. The bank won't talk to me anymore. Well, I know why they won't talk to you because they sold the loan. You know they don't have anything to do anymore. That's why I own the loan. Okay, so I am the bank talking to you now. Now let's see what we can work out. So, prove to me that you have steady income, that you want to stay in the property, and maybe you got some skin because you've been you haven't been making a mortgage payment for a year. So, hopefully, you've saved some of that. You haven't just gone out and bought toys or whatever. So, we want to get some. We want to get some good faith money from this from the individual, and then maybe we rewrite this mortgage. For um, you know, maybe maybe we maybe we roll their defer their arrears into the balance and say, okay, your loan is now eighty thousand dollars, but we're going to give you a you know a lower interest rate for the first two or three years. There's all see, the thing of it is all kinds of tools we have available now because of what we bought this paper for. We bought it at forty five cents. So so if they're let's just say for instance uh, they're making. Uh, they, they the loans written at nine percent interest on their on their eighty thousand dollars that they owe. Well, if I'm into that for for half of that for forty thousand dollars, I'm just using real rough numbers. Then really that's a sixteen percent yield on my investment, right? So I can take that performing paper now after they've made two or three, four, or six months of payments, and I can sell it to uh, performing paper investors out there that'll buy that at about a ten or eleven percent you know, interest rate, maybe less, maybe a 9% if they like the area. So you just run the numbers and see what that might make my loan worth $60,000. So I paid 45 for it. I can sell it for 60. I made $15,000. You know, that's just a, that's that's in in rough terms. The numbers are actually more exciting with seconds because we end up, just to give you an example, we're making two and a half X for everything we buy we buy $100,000 worth of second mortgages. We're going to profit. We're going to make $250,000 on that 100000 It's yeah. finding them today that's, that's difficult. So you can't really start and build a business model based on that today. It's just, but when you find those, they're like gold, I, I think. A lot of people throw them away. I love them. Send them all to me.
0: I love it. I love it, man. Jim, this has been a fascinating, fascinating episode. I'm so happy we're able to dive, do a deep dive, a master class on notes. It's been so truly <laughs> inspirational. I love the business model, um, but yet and still, like you said, it's 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 very hard to find a lot of these notes these days, and to create the, these types of financing structures. And I want to kind of talk to what you guys are doing in the space, and um, kind of how you're helping maybe the average individual get into this business, and some of the things that they could look forward to if they visit, if they go up to you guys' you guys' website.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. So uh, I just got to be 100% honest with you because that's just the way I am. Um, the model that we're doing right now is actually not, we really don't have an entry-level aspect to it. Like we're not, we're not in the training business where I can point people in a good direction. Uh, we're, we're actually at the place now where we're working with institutional and accredited investors that invest in our mortgage funds And then, um, you know, so they're passive investors, but I can, I, we're, we're more than happy to point people into a good direction for getting started in the note business, unless they're a passive accredited investor, then we welcome them to invest in our funds, but it's Aspen So other than being able to give some advice and point people to some of these, uh, you know, some of these different note companies that are out there doing trainings and, um, holding these conferences. That's what I would recommend. And honestly, go to a conference and just do a a three-day immersion into this thing. And you'll know right away whether it's something you want to, you know, pursue long-term or not. And I I think probably most people that go end up pretty excited at these note conferences. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, So I want to quickly
0: touch on that last sub-segment of people who are accredited investors and they're looking to uh, diversify, they're looking to invest in funds such as yours this is a completely different business model than what we've kind of been talking about. So what would be the pros and cons as opposed to crowdfunding or investing in like a fundrise or going out to buy these notes themselves? Like what's uh, why invest in a fund uh, after uh, note investing?
1: Yeah. So uh, well, first of all, I can, I can, I can uh, handle the, the, the last, the last one that you said right away, like as opposed to going out and buying notes, it, it's, it's, you know, buying and owning a note, you you now have an asset that you have to work. It's not a passive investment. Okay. I'm assuming you're talking about not a non-performing loan. So if I have, you know, if I have a million dollars and I want to make a good return on my money, you know, and I can invest it with a group that's going to, you know, I mean, traditionally we've been generating between 15 and 25%, you know, IRRs to our accredited investors that invest in our mortgage pools or our funds that are workout funds. That's where we buy the non-performing mortgages. On the other side of our business where we buy the performing loans, you know, we're paying a, uh, you know, like an eight, eight and a half percent preferred return to our investors. And that's like first money out there. It's super secure. So they're taking their their money and instead of going out and buying a handful of loans, they're investing it into a larger pool which is managed by professionals, and we're continually, we're in the business day in and day out, and we've got, you know, we've got some very seasoned professionals, and we're, we're doing it, you know, we're licensed where we need to be, and we're working with servicers. It's a whole nother world. It's a passive investment for that type of person. Uh, for, as far as crowdfunding, you know, don't really have a huge opinion on that. that. That's really more of a tool for a person like me that wants to go raise money, um, and it gives you access, and it gives the person, the investor, access to deals they may not have had access to before. The problem there is, is are they qualified to really vet out the different sponsors? Because anybody and everybody can, you know, put their stuff out there. You know, just like GoFundMe, right? You can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so you really have to know what you're doing there to know who to invest in. It's it's sort of the same thing in our world. We we're, we do everything by private placement. So an accredited investor is going to get to know us. They're going to get to know who we are, what our model is. They're going to look at our operating agreements. They're going to look at our documentation, and uh, you know, try to get some third-party validation. But um, it's a once they decide to invest with us, it's a 100% passive investment. We send out monthly on our income fund. We send out, we, we give them a monthly uh, they get their payment monthly, and then a quarterly statement, which you know gives all the financials of the fund and and whatnot. So it's kind of it's it's a it's a semi it looks like an institutional investment almost. I love it. From a, from a, um, and speaking to the
0: accredited investors from an asset allocation standpoint, uh, again, this can be one of your kids or one of your best friends is just now getting into the space. But from an asset allocation standpoint, let's just say you, uh, you know, you're working or as, as an accredited investor, you're working with sponsors who who buy apartment buildings and they're earning the same IRR as you guys, what, what, from a risk reward standpoint, what kind of advice would you give that person to diversify? What's more risky and what's, what's less risky? And how, do you, how, how would you kind of quantify that?
1: Wow. That's a, that's a good question. And it's, 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 it's a little bit of a tough one. I'm not really on the finance side of our business, but I, I know that, uh, you know, you can invest in um, apartments. Uh, really, really super important to know your sponsor, uh, because a property can look great on paper. All the numbers can look great on paper. And, you know, markets go up and markets go down. And, you know, there's parts of the nation right now that are probably overbuilt. You know, apartments were the darling investment, you know, in, in the past season. You know, for a while, it was storage units. But after a while, everybody jumps into that space. You know, they take the home study course and, you know, wow, I'm going to go be a, a, you know, a, a mini storage yeah. developer. Yeah. And and then you then you have the big institutional re- you know, uh, REIT trusts, real estate investment trusts that come in and basically they squeeze the cap rates down to the point where you really have to be able to find a value added play for it to make sense. So the mortgage space, it's just not, it's it's not as sexy if I can use that term. It's like, look, these are existing mortgages for the most part, what we what we specialize in, the, these are mortgages that are secured by, you know, home sweet home. It's mom and pop. It's It's not it's not a business model per se it's a it's home it's bread and butter so uh you know our our metrics are easier to look at our risk profile is easier to assess i think there's still risk in our business if we're if we're too strongly invested in the coasts i think right now the coasts are you know they're 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 subject to some correction especially the west coast but uh but our, our loans are spread out across thirty eight states, so I tell our passive investors coming in, and I have investors out in, in California that are you know they're lending money as private lenders out on the street in the seven eight nine percent range for someone to do a fix and flip. All I'm saying you could put that same money in our fund and it's not it's not based on a fix and flip being successful. These are mortgages that are, have already been paying in some cases for several years, and you're secured by you know people's homes that they're, you know, they're not going to stop paying on unless they run in some real serious trouble. And then there, even then there's ways we can help them stay in. So I, I think it's a super low risk uh, play within the real estate space, but I'm not going to throw anybody else's models under the bus. I mean, there's some great apartment deals you can do and there's some great storage deals you can do. The bottom line is just do your homework, run the numbers or get some counselors around you that can, that can help you make a good decision. Yeah, and diversify. I so I love that. I love that.
0: Dude, this has been simply amazing. I I love this podcast episode from beginning to end. And
1: I I, I kind of want
0: to round it this uh the segment out with, with this. When you think about you know the past decades, two get decades, three decades of of failures and successes, and kind of what you've been aiming for, I believe that that's ultimate lifestyle design for yourself and your family. And you set your laurels on a vehicle to do that for yourself and for your family for generations to come. Because I don't think that it stops with you. I think it started with you. You've now transitioned into a stage in life to where you are "quote unquote" living your ultimate lifestyle design, and that's something that I want many of the listeners, if not all of the listeners, to eventually get to. Um, and you've had a lot of trials and tribulations on that journey. What 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 would be your your biggest advice when it comes to failure? Like when it comes to hey, like I I, had, I could have given up uh, two decades ago, a decade ago, I could have given up every single time. I could have went back to be an engineer, but I knew what I wanted. What What's kind of your biggest advice? Just Just thinking back over your journey of the past few decades.
1: Well, you know, at a, at a uh, at a practical level, there's the adage out there that the best way to learn is by is through your mistakes, right? I, I'm going to propose to you that that's actually the second best way to learn. The first best way to learn is learn from my mistakes, somebody else's mistakes. Okay, yep. and 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 the sad the sad fact is the human nature is most of us will nod our heads to that and say, yeah, that sounds good. But then we'll go need to make the mistakes ourselves anyway, which is foolishness. Um, When I got started as an entrepreneur, I don't even know that I ever heard the word mentor. It probably was out there somewhere, but I never heard it. A person nowadays really doesn't have any excuse to not, once they decide what they want to do, what, where, where in the entrepreneurial world they want to insert themselves, go find the people that are doing it successfully with integrity, with, with character. And you can find all this out because when you really drill down into any industry, they're all, we always say it's a small world. It, everywhere you go is a small world. Every space you get into, is a, you can find out really quickly if you do the homework, who the bad actors are and who the good actors are and who the people that are willing to mentor. And you really can learn from other people's mistakes. I mean, I maybe one day I'll do a, a mentoring deal called learn from my mistakes or something. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, so that's on the practical end. It's like, you really can say, you can really cut a lot of time off the learning curve by just being a great student and finding a mentor or mentors to follow. Uh, the second to part of that would be focus, focus, focus. Um, and that, for me to say this, if you knew me and knew my personality, my, my business partner would laugh right now at me because I can, I can get shiny object syndrome as, as, as good as the next guy. But when we decided to focus on this, and he's really been a great help to me, my partner, um, when we started in 2012 together. But just really focusing on this thing to the point now where we have a staff that pretty much, I mean, I'm really not that needed in this, in this company anymore. You know, I hate to say that I might get I might have to fire myself, but if there you go. focus <laughs> until you get the thing working and then it just becomes processes, it's all about the right people and putting the processes and systems in place and let those things you know scale your business. That's uh, that's where you want to get.
0: Lifestyle design acceleration hacks. What is your favorite for the millions book?
1: Well, <laughs> I have to say, it's, uh, I I don't actually do a lot of reading. Um, When I read, it's, it's, it's usually spiritual orientation. I I read the Bible, you know, there's wisdom in that book. Uh, You know, John Maxwell is probably the most well-known. He's probably changed the culture of business internationally more than one, more than any individual with his leadership books. If you really break it down and look at the stuff he's teaching, it's all in the book of Proverbs right there in the Holy Bible, the best-selling book of all time. So honestly, uh, that, it's my story, so I get to tell it. But that's, that's, that's what most of my reading flows out of. Uh, but what I do is a lot of webinars. So I'm a Cliff Notes guy, all right? I've never, I'm, I'm a little too adult ADD to sit down and read too many books cover to cover. But I absorb information. So I'll, I'll go to podcasts. I'll go to webinars. I'll sign up for webinars. I'll, I'll go to conferences and just soak up, soak up, soak up what people are doing. And, uh, wow. you know, I, so I don't, I'm just, I, I'd like to say I was a, a big reader of books. I probably, when I go through a book, I can glean the main points from it. And then I just like interaction with human beings more. So
0: I love it. I love it. Beautiful answer. What is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool.
1: Yeah. You know what? A, bi- a big one right now is what we're doing right now, uh, Duray is, uh, is, is Zoom and these online, you know, we use TeamViewer. It's, it's free. I mean, yeah. for heaven's sake, you can have a meeting. Well, I mean, I'm in Colorado. I live in Colorado. I'm a 50-50 owner of, of the company that we have, which is headquartered in Kansas City. Two of my sons are working for us there in the Kansas City office. My business partner's there in Kansas City. We have our workout loss mitigation operation in Maryland. Okay. And we have this seamless business because of the, because of tools like this, like Zoom and like TeamViewer. And we're able to share screens and have these virtual meetings. So we use Salesforce as our uh keeping track of all of our accounts. And that's a that's a CRM tool that's out there. And so uh those those are just a few of them. I mean I, I do more business I've done business with my iPhone from the chairlift. I shouldn't be saying this in case any of my staff I've actually signed purchase agreements on the chairlift on my way up to do another ski run. And here everybody back, back home. Wow.
0: Goals, 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 goals. There you go. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So we have zoom, we have team viewer and we have, what was your CRM again? Salesforce. Salesforce. Um, Awesome. Awesome stuff. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed?
1: Well, you know, again, I, I'm sick Could be 63 years old here in a month. So this isn't going to be the same stage everybody's at in life, but, but you can have it, you know, you can have it as a goal to aim at right now. My, my involvement in the business is more about pouring into the people that are working for us and um, seeing that they're, you know, that that their destiny is being pulled out of them. Um, I, I love managing the business at a high level. We have very capable managers on a kind of a departmental level, but um you know i just love i you know i this is my third time up the hill you know and this is what i had a vision for you know 30 years ago was was having a business where i could become truly passive but still involved with people because i don't i don't want to just have you know money coming into the mailbox every month but no interaction with human beings i just i love people i love being i love being in a day-to-day involvement with people so that's probably it for me i can I can work the hours that I want to work. And, you know, I'll I'll just say this, you know, if you don't love working, don't become an entrepreneur. I'm not going to sit here and talk to you about the four hour work week. I know there's people pulling that off. Um, As an entrepreneur, you're going to probably work more hours at the end of the day than a person that's working a nine to five job. I will say this though, you love your, you love your work so much because you chose it if you're an entrepreneur that, you know, and people ask me, well, what about vacations? You know, I'll take a few days here and there. I just don't need it. I love what I do. So I feel like I'm, in some sense, I'm always on vacation. And yeah, if an email comes through that I need to answer, I answer it. But it's not like this big drudgery of a task. I just enjoy doing it. So I enjoyed talking with you here. You know, this is work. They call this work. You know? They call this work. Dude. They actually call this work. It's crazy. I, if I, every single day, it fascinates me. <laughs> yeah, that's right
0: what were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today?
1: Yeah. The sacrifices. Well, you know, there was definitely, and there always has been uh, hard and focused work, not, not grueling work. I'm not, I'm not that I'd, I'd wish I was more of a athlete class worker, you know, but uh, you do have to focus. You have to be willing to uh, absorb failures along the way and not focus on those. I mean, you learn from them and then move on, put it behind you and move on. Um, To get to where I am today, which is being, you know, a co-owner and a co-CEO of this growing company, honestly, the first, you know, serious windfalls we started getting when we started getting some big checks coming in in 2014, we sewed that right back into bringing, hiring people and bringing them on because we wanted to scale the business I wanted to share it with, with, uh, so now we have, you know, four of our kids working for us in, in, in business. Awesome. And so, uh, the sacrifice there has been where we could have, you know, made the millions and taken it and gone and spent it. We're investing that back into this company for the future. And yeah, we're enjoying it too. And we're being, we're being rewarded financially, but, um, you know, I, I think the generation, our, the next generation is going to be rewarded financially because of what we're putting back into the business. So. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? Wow. So I definitely would say the, my, uh, my education, my upbringing um, helped a lot. You know, my engineering six years as an engineer and a project manager, that, that education, that learning that way of thinking and being able to apply that project management type of mindset to a new business model, an entrepreneurial business model. It's all the same skills. You just, you know, tra- transfer those over. Um, so I'd say that was that was really key. And,
0: Jim, who was essential to your growth before the millions and why?
1: Wow. Okay, so I would say my parents for sure because of the way I was brought up. I would say there was a gentleman that uh, when I was still an engineer, a gentleman actually that my wife wed- met at the YMCA who was a real estate syndicator and he uh, he started talking to her about what he was doing in real estate and projects. She says, oh, you need to meet my husband. And so I, I met this gentleman. He ended up being, he was a neighbor actually. And he kind of took me under his wing. And uh, so there, I guess that was a mentor. They didn't even call him then back back then. They didn't, wouldn't have called himself a mentor, but he kind of coached me along. And, uh, you know, so he'd be a guy that Rick Begulins his name. And he's a guy that helped me out a lot. I he love it. Started.
0: I love it. I love it. Last but not least, Jim, why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention of getting to the millions?
1: Why are most of us stuck? You know, there's a lot of things. Um, there's a lot of issues that, you know, within our human nature, there's a lot of, there's a lot of baggage that we carry, whether we're willing to admit it or not. And um, you know, when you start up that, when you start up the entrepreneurial slope, you're going to, you're going to be confronted with character issues in in yourself. You know, Uh, where do I run to when there's pressure on? Do I run to the refrigerator? Do I run to the theater and watch a movie to, you know, you start seeing the places where, where, where we escape and, you know, really having the mindset that I'm not, once I see reality about myself, once I see where the weakness is, I'm not going to go into condemnation. I'm not going to go into shame. I'm just going to, I'm going to get with some people that are overcoming and that are overcomers. And I'm going to say, help me along. It's humbling. But um, I think that's where people get stuck. I think most, I think most people get stuck because of their interior life hasn't been dealt with at a level. And, and that's an ongoing journey, as we all know, you know, um, but it's, you, you're, you're pretty quickly, you're confronted with your fears. And, uh, you know, there's some great personal development people out there. Um, Again, and if, if you're part of a church, that's, that's, that's great. That uh, People that have their head on straight, as, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So, so yes. if you're thinking about failure all the time and you're thinking about my, my background and my limitations and, well, we didn't have this and didn't have that, it's, it's a recipe for failure. But if you look at the opportunity we have and you move forward and then you get with other people that are going to help pull you up instead of dragging you down, you'll make it, man. Anybody can, I'm convinced anybody, wherever they're at today, there's a path forward for the person who's in jail today. There's a path forward for them if they'll, if they'll, first of all, get their mindset right and then look for that person that's going to be divinely sent to them. It's going to say, you know what? I'll go on this journey with you. Let me, let me, let me walk you to the next step of this thing. People are out there. You just have to open your eyes and believe for it. Boom.
0: And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Jim, this has been beautiful. I wish I could say your Italian last name. So say it one more time for our listeners. Mofuccio. Mofuccio. Thank you so <laughs> much, Mr. Mofuccio. This has been an amazing podcast episode. If listeners want to learn a little bit more about you, maybe ask you a question or two, where and how can they reach out?
1: Yeah, the best way, again, is go visit our website. We're, we're a small company, so we'll find you. aspenfunds.us. And just uh, go to go to resources. or go to contact us and just send us a message and tell us what you're what you're interested in. And uh, and we'll get back to you and uh, help you along the way.
0: I love it. I love it. Jim. keep on doing what you're doing in the community. And we'll talk to you very, very soon.
1: All right, man. Thank you very much. Derek. God bless.